Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Jerry. Hey, Jerry, it's Ben. Ben, how long have you been covering NASCAR? A lifetime. Me too. And how fitting it is that we're the hosts of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely Ben White on the other side of this microphone, as well as myself, Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've heard through the years. You'll learn about what the, where the sport has been, where it'll go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. And we're back. Ben, hey, good seeing you again as always. And, you know, we, uh, we're in the, uh, we're as, as they like to use that word, the penultimate week of the NASCAR Cup season. <laughs> Great uh, word. That's right, exactly. And second to last race of the season. This is where the um, the entire field for the um, uh, race in Phoenix, the championship race next week, uh, is set. We, we're gonna obviously Kyle Larson's already locked in. No one else though is locked in, and we've got a lot to talk about, especially about Martinsville, because you know it's such a historic racetrack. You know, it's it's the oldest short track on the circuit. It's been around for well over, uh, well, like almost 60, 60 some years, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 62, 63 years, I think it is. And, you know, I guess the best place to start off with, Ben, is, you know, this is a track that has, there is so much history, so much good, but there also was uh, some tragedy. And we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. But, you know, this is a place that Martinsville, the short track, that a lot of people uh, have kind of called Martinsville the short tracks or the Talladega of short tracks, if you will. I mean, because it's a, such a, a crazy track. It's very narrow. Uh, the biggest problem that, that the, the drivers have and the crew chiefs have to deal with is the tire wear, the fuel mileage. And it's such a tight racetrack, like I said, that passing is extremely at a premium. You know, you've been at Martinsville so many times. Is there one thing about that racetrack that kind of just stands out in your mind that makes it so unique to to not only the drivers but also the fans as well too? Yeah, I would say the one thing that makes it unique, Jerry, is the fact that no matter where you sit in the place, you get a great seat. You could sit on the front, you could sit on any of the turns, uh, anywhere in the track. You have an absolute premier seat at this track. It's uh, officially at 0.526 in length. It's kind of a unique track in the respect that, well, first of all, let me give you a little bit of background. Sure. Started off as a dirt track. It was built actually uh, September, and opened, I should say, September 7th, 1947, a year or two before NASCAR was formed. 
And around the Martinsville area, it, there were placards put all over uh, phone poles and it said plainly a dust free racetrack. Okay. And so the day that H. Clay Earls, who built the track, uh, opened it, the men and women came straight out of church. Uh, maybe we stopped by somewhere to get a quick bite to eat, and they came right over to the racetrack in their Sunday best, suits and ties and the fedora hats, and the women had the high heels and the beautiful dresses, came right out of church. Well, guess what happened? The field took the green flag, and it wasn't a lap or two before everybody was covered in this really bright Virginia red clay. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and so... Mr. Earls said in articles later that were written, he said people would come to him and he'd stop in coffee shops and places to try to get people to come back to the racetrack. And he said even 30, 40 years later, he said, I was there. People would say, I was there that day, and, he, and I've never been back. And he said, well, why not? We paved the racetrack. Oh, I'm certain it's still going to be just as dusty as it was the day I was there <laughs> the first time. And he never could get people convinced, some of the older folks that were there, to ever come back. But but, but the one thing to answer your question, I guess the, the, the thing that, that I know for a fact that drivers love about the racetrack, I guess, and hate about the racetrack is that as far as the drivers go, if you can master the brakes, the one word that yep. really, really stand out to the drivers, if you can build a car that's great to handle in the turns, that's all well and good. But if you cannot master your brakes, that is, it's just a terrible racetrack all afternoon. And, and I've heard Bobby Allison, close friend of mine, tell me so many times, he said, I won the Martinsville 490 and the Martinsville 495 about a hundred times. <laughs> it was that last 10, 15 laps, five laps, that something would ev inevitably always happen to me. And I never could win a cup race there. He did win a modified race there in the early 60s one time, but he could never master the brakes. And that was the key. Darrell Waltrip did, Richard Petty did, and uh, so many drivers that did win there, and the modified drivers, Jeff Bodine, uh, the late Richie Evans, who lost his life there, but they could master. But the brakes, that's the one thing. If you couldn't master the brakes, you couldn't win there. And, you know, the one thing, I, I'm glad you brought up about the, about the brakes, is that, you know, you look at racetracks uh, across the country, NASCAR Cup uh, racetracks, you may see the brakes glow a little bit at some of the tracks. Bristol's the first thing I think of. Richmond's another track. But, I mean, when it comes to brakes glowing, the brake pads glowing, sometimes even catching on fire, there's no question Martinsville is the king of that because, I mean, especially when you see a race, and we've seen, you know, especially in the last few years, some of the races have gone into – it's gotten started getting a little darker, you know, because this, you know, the the darkness is starting to come through. Um, that's when you can see the the glow of the brakes so pronouncedly, and you know, especially what I always have a um, um, hard time understanding, or you know, I feel for these guys is the crew guys because when they come in to the pits for a pit stop, those brakes are red, red hot, and I, you know, these guys obviously have gloves on, they're changing the tires, but. Man, if you touch one of those brakes, you're going to probably get a, a nice uh, little, and I don't mean nice, I mean a very uh, a rude awakening kind of feel because those brakes are so hot. There's no question about that. You know, absolutely, yeah. And, and if you have a cold uh, day there in Martinsville, and I've been to a few of those uh, either in the, in the early spring or late fall, 
it's it, the, the I guess the best seat in the house, so to speak, is the guy who's behind the wheel or the guy changing that tire because it's nice and warm when they, for a few <laughs> seconds where they get that tire off because the, the brake rotors are, you're right, they're so hot. It doesn't take very long to uh, to to get uh, a, a nice, uh, you know, nice warm feeling there because they are so, so hot. I remember a race, I believe it was 1997 or 8, 98, I believe, and that was the day that was uncharacteristically hot. I believe it was the spring race. And Ricky Rudd and I had talked about this recently, uh, and they, they had a cool suit system set up for Ricky. And it, uh, you know, like so many times it failed. <laughs> and they, they modified the seat to where water, uh, cold water would go through the seat. Well, of course it failed. And that was the day that he ended up winning the race, but it basically boiled him in the seat. And mm -hmm. he did run the entire 500 laps he won it, but he had to have some assistance getting out of the car because he was just so hot getting out of it and had to sit down in victory lane, had to get some EMTs to sort of get him revived and get him back to being a hundred percent because he, he was so dehydrated after running those laps. And he's like, the car handled so well. He said, I couldn't imagine getting out of the car because it was perfect. The car was great all day. And, and it's hard to get a perfect car at Martinsville because you're either running really well in three and four or really well in one or two and you're struggling somewhere on the racetrack not to mention having other 39 cars you're battling all afternoon. See, the car was perfect, but the driver wasn't perfect, meaning himself. And that's the sort of challenge you get at Martinsville. It's just you get a great car, but then maybe the driver's not 100% or you're having some type of mechanical issue all day long. And if you stop and think about it, it's a, basically a half-mile racetrack, mm -hmm. and you're running 250 miles, but it's 500 laps around the place. Yeah. And you think you're up there and – you've only completed 60, 70 laps. You're thinking, oh, my Lord, you got another, you know, what, 440-some laps to go all day long. But, you know, it brings back a, just – I just had this thought, and I believe this was 1993 or 94. We were sitting up in the press box. This is so amazing to me. We were sitting up there one afternoon, and Dale Earnhardt was really running well. And about the halfway point, he was in this RCR number three car, that day and we looked down there and you can sort of see inside the race car and he had he was driving left-handed and he had his right arm on what's what's called the spider bar which is right. the car in the in the bar in the center of the car and he had his right arm on this spider bar and and he's like it's just like you got to be kidding me this car is handling so well that he's driving with his left hand arm on the right spider bar and everybody else that was coming through one and two there because you could look down from the press box into one and two they're struggling and struggling and struggling to get their cars through one and two here comes old Earnhardt. he's just <laughs> it looks like the only thing missing from this picture is a cup of coffee with cream and sugar okay he's just <laughs> coming through there every lap lap after lap after lap ends up winning the race and we asked him later i said what was going on why was the car was the car so good? You're that comfortable? He said, man, I was on a Sunday afternoon drive. And that's <laughs> what exactly what it looked like. So the thing about Martinsville is you can get it so dialed in. And if your crew is that good, they can keep your crew chief can keep that car the way you want that car to be through, through tire pressures, uh, through setup, whatever the case may be. That's exactly what it looked like. And it, I can't describe 
accurately how cool that looked to every, everybody was picking up on it. We were standing up from our seats, looking down, said, look at what he's doing. He's sitting there just cruising through these turns. And it literally looked like he was driving his regular passenger car. Right. And then, that, and then we'd say, what, wait, wait, watch, watch what's coming up. Watch Rusty. He's coming up or Jeff Gordon's coming up. And they were just fighting their cars. So here comes Earnhardt. He just gliding through the turns. It was amazing to watch. And that's what Martinsville is about. It's a tight little racetrack. If you get it right, you're right. If you're not right, it's a long, long afternoon. Now, you know, this one thing I found about Martinsville is rather unique. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of tracks that have two races a year. And they're typically, you know, one race in the spring, one race in the fall, or maybe, you know, two in the summer or one in the spring, one in the summer or what have you. But Martinsville, to me, is probably the most unique track of all that hosts two races a year because the early season race, uh, the weather is a lot different than you have in the fall. The fall can be so unpredictable. It can be really stormy. It can be really cold. I mean, we've had races that have been started in the 30, you know, in the, in the 30s when it comes to temperatures or the 40s, whereas the spring race, you know, can be 50s, 60s, 70s. So does does that... How does that make it difficult or does it make it difficult for the crew chiefs that they have to uh, adapt their game plan to the weather? Or is there no real need for them to worry about the weather and they just adapt the car based upon what the last time they ran it there, the car was like? Yeah, I think weather does play a big, big factor, especially with the newer type of cars that we have today and the engines that they have to uh, work with today. Maybe not so much in the say the 60s and 70s because they were more of a stock type engine i think there's a lot more uh thought that goes into it a lot more strategy that goes into it it's more of a a fine line in today's engines and chassis and and tire setups and, and chassis setups than they than they have had in the past so yeah you look at drivers and crew chiefs talking more about what's the weather going to be like and how the weather is going to change. We've seen situations at Martinsville and other racetracks where it turns off very, very cold in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then by race time, you see a cold racetrack, cold tires. And then as the day goes on, you start seeing temperatures go up, up, up. And then you've got uh, a 65, 70 or 75 degree day. Yeah, that does play a big factor in how they set up the cars and how they're going to adapt to what's going to go on later in the day. And then what you end up with uh, at what we're going to see on Sunday, I think, it's good. we're going to have some rain, I think, on on Friday and Saturday. But then you're going to have a nice day, about a 70-degree day on Sunday. But then by the time the race ends, you're going to have colder, chillier temperatures so all of that plays into it, where in the past, you're, you had more of a stock car mm-hmm. and a stock engine, modified, of course, for race conditions. But, I mean, you're gonna, you had a lot more uh, stock-type parts, where today I think your cars are far different than what they used to be. So, yeah, a lot more strategy, even, even on a short track like Martinsville, I think that's going to play into it for sure. You know, we've got so much to talk about Martinsville, but I, there were two things that I wanted to bring up before we go back more into talking about drivers and, and what they've done over there. Um, the, the, there's a good story here, and there's also a very tragic story. But let's the good story is, 
You know, you were talking earlier about uh, how the, the fans were coated in the red dust when the track was unpaved. Well, I guess that after the track was paved, they still wanted to have some red out there, if you know what I'm saying. So they kind of changed it from the red dust to the red Martinsville hot dogs, which are the the <laughs> best things out there. I mean, I think I, you know, and, and I admittedly, I used to have a pretty good appetite before I had a gastric bypass surgery about three years ago. But I mean, when I would go to Martinsville, easily, easily five or six hot dogs during the course, you know, before, during, and after the race. I mean, it's just, those things are the best things there are in the world. So, I mean, do, do you recall the history of the Martinsville hot dog or how it came about? I know there was about, what was it, uh, seven years ago, I want to say, there was kind of a conflict because they changed from one brand to another brand, mm. but they still tasted pretty much the same. I mean, maybe a little bit different, but, you know, the, the history of the Martinsville hot dog is very unique. And, yeah. you know, no other track that I know of, uh, maybe other than uh, South Boston, which is known for its bologna sandwiches, the fried bologna sandwiches, um, I can't think of any other track that really has a, uh, you know, a, a, a food product that is so tied in with a place like Martinsville is with the Martinsville hot dogs. What, what can you tell us about the Martinsville hot dog, Ben? Well, I, I, and you're right, Jerry. I don't know of another track that has a signature type hot dog. And I think, to be honest with you, that started sometime in the late 60s, I believe, if mm -hmm. I'm not mistaken. And it's, right. a, it's a local manufacturer of that particular hot dog. It's just in the Martinsville area. And what makes it so unique, it's two things. It's the flavor of the hot dog, but it's still a $2 hot dog. Right. And it's not making money on a hot dog. It's not like a vended uh, hot dog that you buy at an amusement park that could end up being a $6 hot dog. It's a $2 hot dog. And it's a great hot dog. And, it, and I'm, I admire you for staying at, at the four or five range. I have to admit, I, in the past, I've not done that. I, you know, <laughs> when you're in the media center or the press box and it's a free hot dog and it's a long 500 mile race, I've gone way over five. Okay, so I admire you for that. But uh, it's... You're talking about that that controversy. This is the funny story that I'm 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 gonna share this because it was hilarious. It was that weekend. You're right, it's six or seven years ago, and all these race teams they were really up in arms about this. They were gonna switch this out, and and top team owners and drivers they were really up in arms about it. They were they went to Mike Helton, okay, vice chairman of NASCAR. Is like. And and Mike Helton said, "What's up? Is it the restrictor plate? Is it the tire? Is it what? No, 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 man, you don't get it. No, no, that's not it. But what's the problem? He said, it's the hot dog. They're changing the hot dog. Do you not understand how big this is? He said, well, it's, it's just a hot dog. No, 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 it's the Martinsville hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were really up in arms about it. And he said, all right, I'll tell you what. So if you can just get us through this race, if you can just put up with it this race, we'll go back to the old hot dog. But, 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 but no, we can't do that, you know, or those deals. I mean, it was a really controversial deal, right? Because this thing had been there 25, 30, maybe 40 years of this, maybe longer. I mean, of this hot dog is almost like taking the grandfather clock trophy that you win, you get when right. you win at Martinsville. You, you can't take the clock away. Well, you can't take the hot dog away. It's a tradition. And I don't know who came up with the idea to switch it. But they ended up going back to the old hot dog. But, I mean, this is a real big deal. Everybody in the garage, the drivers, the team owners, the crew members, the fans, is like, what? You're changing the hot dog? You can't do that. Exactly. So, anyway. Well, and, and, you know, the hot dog, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a combination of 
is it um, um, like slaw and chili? Am I right? Yeah, I think it, well, I think it, yeah, it's, it's got a unique, uh, well, first off, the hot dog itself is sort of like a good old red hot dog, probably, right. the, worst, right. probably the worst thing you could probably eat, okay? But that's what's great about it. It's just a great old red hot dog. And then you got a chili and a special sort of slaw to it. Maybe, I don't know if it's even got mustard. I don't know. I'm, I'm not yeah, even I'm sure, reading it. But... Yeah, I'm reading right now. It says mustard, chili, a vinegar-based slaw, oh, okay. and onions. I mean, okay. and, yeah. and for... it's just a great, good old track hot dog, you know, that it's just part of the lure of going to Martinsville, okay? It's, it's I can't explain it. It's, it's like the signal. Here it is. Here it is. It's like this. It's like when you go to Bowman Gray Stadium, in Winston-Salem, you get vinegar fries, okay? Yep. There's just something really cool about getting those vinegar fries and smelling that in the air in the summertime. And that mixed with people smoking cigars at Bowling Gray. <laughs> it's just something about that, okay? So it's the same thing with the with the hot dog at Martinsville. And it's, it's a tradition. It's been there 50 years. And they just wanted to switch them out. It was like to save money, whatever the case is, and maybe even charge more. It's like, nah. You just got to leave that alone, okay? Yeah. You're not going to sell enough hot dogs to make a splash in the budget, all right? Leave it alone. Leave it alone. And that's, they went back to it and fixed it. But, I mean, that, it was just amazing to see how everybody got so up in arms about it. And, and they fixed it, and they went back. It was a revolt. It's like, we're not coming back. If you, you know, I don't care about the racing. You're messing up the hot dogs. So. Right. Well, you, well, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but – the hot dog itself, I believe, and I may be wrong about this, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right. The hot dogs are sold uh, around the track by volunteers, and the proceeds of the hot dog sales actually go to charities and that kind of thing. I don't know if they actually, the sales actually, or the you know, the profits or whatever, actually go directly to the track. I think I'm pretty sure that it goes to like, you know, uh, and I'm just saying this hypothetically, like, you know, like the Boy Scouts or certain, some right. church groups, yeah. things like that. So, I mean, that uh, in itself is, is a good thing in my opinion. Yeah, it is. And I'm, and I'll be completely honest with you, Jerry. I, I'm not up to speed on that part. I really don't know. I, I hope you're correct. Uh, you may be, and I, and it'd be wonderful if that's the case. I don't know what the, the reasoning was behind the change, but I just remember how cool it was that everybody was just so upset about it. Like, right, right, right. Well, let me I just think you, it was great. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Let's go back about, oh gosh, what was it? I'm going to guess maybe 15 years ago okay. and i seem to recall this this is you know this popped in my head when when you were talking about uh, you know your memories of the hot dog didn't they try to quote unquote import a bunch of martinsville hot dogs and i want to say it was to charlotte if i remember right at charlotte motor speedway there was a a race i want to say it might have been the fall race I, I it was something like that and i remember that they brought martinsville hot dogs to the media center it may, i'm again i'm it's 15 years, maybe a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. But do you remember that? I mean, it was so weird to eat them, but boy, we we devoured them. I remember that, yeah, though. Yeah, I, I I think I remember, and I could be way off the mark here, but it seemed like we had some, I don't remember that specifically, but I think we had some media tour or something going on dealing with Martinsville, and, yeah. and they bought in a ton of Martinsville hot dogs for that. Right, I remember that, and right, you're right. Maybe you're right. that, but I don't specifically remember the Charlotte thing. Right. But, it's, too, uh, 
It's too bad they don't import but, them to other places like that, though, you know? But I got to tell you, though, you're my hero if you held it down to five hot dogs. <laughs> I mean, I can't do it. I really can't do it. Let me let me give you this. We'll move on here in just a second, but I'll, uh, let me paint this picture for you. You're on lap 78 of 500 laps, and one guy is way out front by a straightaway, and you got a long way to go, and there's this tub, this, this thing back there in the back of the press box, and they're just there. And, yep. you know, it's like, man, yeah. hey, and they're bringing in more. I can't hold it down to five. I'm you know sorry. what? I, you know what I would love to see? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Joey Chestnut. He's the world's hot dog eating guy. He's the one that, uh, what I've is heard it? The name. The, uh, I'm sorry, what? I've heard the name, I yeah. believe. He, he um, uh, what's the name of the, the um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the, um, the, 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 um, hot dog company in New York where they, every year, they, it's, I think it's right around the 4th of July where they have the hot dog eating contest. I would love to see Joey Chestnut eat Martinsville hot dogs. I bet he'd eat more than he'd ever eaten in any other kind of hot dog in, in, his, in the world, Bo. But, but yeah. you know, the other thing I was going to mention to you, Ben, is uh, about the hot dogs. I know we want to move on, but this, this is another story too. And I, I seem to recall it being, oh, I want to say, was it maybe Ricky Craven or maybe it might've been, um, Ricky Rudd, somebody like that. I remember that there was one time, and we're probably going back at least 20 years or so, where mm -hmm. um, the race was, uh, I think it was under caution or what have you, that somebody asked to have some hot dogs brought to them in the car and they ate them in the car. Do you do you remember that at all? I do remember that. And it was it was one of the cool things because, I mean, <laughs> you got time. under. I th I've always thought, you know, you'd have time to eat a hot dog under caution i mean it's they're not that hard two three bites right you, know, you can get you'd have to have an open face helmet though that, it had to be an open face helmet <laughs> right, days. Right, right. i i do remember this though back in 77 or 8 i do remember stevie waltrip passing a sandwich through the window to daryl at talladega once and it, right and he's like what are you doing <laughs> he tossed it back out because he didn't think he had time to eat it but i do remember that right, right that was right. a true story right and it'd be interesting to you know, maybe do a feature, a segment on, have you ever had food in a car? It'd be interesting, you know, during a race. I mean, I be. know they've had, you know, like water and Gatorade and Coke and stuff pass through, but maybe we should investigate that and see. But I do remember that happening. And he looked at her through the screen that was like, what are you doing? I remember that. Yeah. She thought it was a picnic, you know? <laughs> and she, You know, I guess she was worried he was maybe hungry. 500 miles is a long way. That's right. You know, I mean, I, 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 you know, when you're, when I'm driving to Daytona, I do need to stop for coffee and a few pretzels from time to time. So you know, <laughs> exactly. maybe she thought he got hungry. I don't know. That's right. That's right. All right. Now let's turn the gears a little bit. And I, I always hate to bring this up, but yep. it's because it was such a tragic day. Uh, in the history of Martinsville Speedway, mm -hmm. um, oct uh, was it October 24th of 2004? So we just, um, and I hate, always hate to use the word celebrated, but we marked the 17th anniversary of it earlier this past Sunday um, when the uh, Hendrick Motorsports plane en route from uh, North Carolina to Martinsville uh, sadly crashed into Bull Mountain. Uh, which is about maybe 10, 12 miles away from Martinsville Raceway and uh, Martinsville Speedway, rather. And um, 10 people lost their lives, including 
Ricky Hendrick, which is Rick Hendrick's only son, uh, John Hendrick, who is Rick Hendrick's brother, and John's two daughters, and a number of other uh, individuals associated with the team, as well as the two pilots. And they eventually found out that it was pilot error, but you know the weather conditions were absolutely horrible. I mean, the the fog, it was a little drizzle. And then I was, yeah, I think you were at that race, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. that day, and I was there too. And I mean, I recall almost everything that happened, um, you know, like it was just yesterday. And it's so sad because, you know, when I we first heard about it, we were probably maybe halfway through the race, and um, I won't mention the individual's name. There's actually two individuals um, who were kind of had a who were kind of plugged into all the information, the breaking information. And they were telling me because I was sitting next to them what was going on. And, you know, eventually word filtered out that there had been some kind of a plane crash. And then by the end of the race, um, you know, Jimmy Johnson won the race and he was led away from his car. Uh, He was not brought into the media center, um, you know, and that's when we learned all the details of, you know, the, the tragedy, you know, I've been around a lot of uh, incidents where people have died, you know, like in, in Indianapolis, you know, during the 500 or practice or qualifying. Um, I was in Indianapolis uh, at um, uh, what is now um, uh, Lucas Oil uh, Drag Strip, um, you know, back in 95 when when a couple of drag racers, uh, Elmer Tritt and um, um, Blaine Johnson were killed back to back two days in a row uh, in drag racing incidents. But the incident with Hendrick Motorsports on October 24th of 2004, to me, was like one of the worst tragedies the sport has ever seen. I mean, I would put it on the same par as when Dale Earnhardt was killed because there were so many people on that plane that were loved, beloved, um, and were just, you know, Ricky, Ricky Hendrick, I mean, he had such a great future ahead of him, not only as a driver, but, you know, eventually maybe taking over his father's racing empire um, you know, John Hendrick, obviously, as well, Rick's brother. What do you remember about that day? I mean, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll turn it over to you in one second, but I, I want to say one other thing. Um, a year later, and it was like, I think, October 23rd, it was, it was almost like a, a, one year to the day, I was back in Martinsville for the race that weekend, and I actually went out to Bull Mar- Mountain. Uh, I think I went out on a Friday late afternoon, if I remember correctly, and... It was not as bad as it was that particular day of the crash, but you know there was a lot of um, a lot of talk and stories about how you could still hear things in the distance, and you know a lot of people seem to remember you know certain things about that venue. And I'll I'll tell you, when I went out to Bull Mountain that day, it was just starting to get dark. I mean, it was dusk, if you will, and I actually did hear kind of, you know, like, it, it almost sounded like an, an airplane, and there was an airstrip right nearby. That's where they, the plane was attempting to land. But it was so spooky to me. I was there for maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then I started feeling like a lot of wind gust, and it did start drizzling a little bit. I said, okay, that's it. I got to get out of here. I mean, this was getting too spooky to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to, you know I've, I've said enough about that on my end. Tell me about your thoughts about that day. Well, you were there, what you remember, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first thing that came to mind when I heard about it, um, I I sort of heard about it unofficially from someone. I was in the press box that afternoon, 
and a prominent a prominent writer with one of the major newspapers called me out in the hallway there at Martinsville and told me what was suspected and it seemed that they had not heard anything from the plane as of like 9 a.m. And it was pretty obvious that that something terrible had happened, but it wasn't official. Right. When I heard that, immediately I thought about Davy Allison, Alan Kowicki, those types of times that it sort of, I just, you know, that horrible dread, just I felt it fall over me, you know, and then, of course, the day we lost Dale Earnhardt. And, you know, it's one of those things you feel so helpless and you feel, it, it, you just feel so overwhelmed, but you don't, you don't really know what to do or say. You're just, you know, it's the announcement's probably coming, but you wish there's something you could do and you can't. And, uh, yeah, I just, I was shocked and sad. And there was another part of that story, too. A week earlier, just a few days, actually, a few days earlier, the week before uh, that race, I had talked with Randy Dorton. Mm-hmm. He, he approached me, and he wanted to know if I would be interested in writing a book with him. Oh, wow. And uh, and I, I was, and we talked about the, uh, you know, the ins and outs of doing a book and how First off, I was honored that he asked me to because I was really just really excited about that opportunity. And I was being honest with him about things, you know, how that industry works and how, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of it. And you know how that can be because you've written many books yourself. Right. And uh, it looks, sometimes it looks kind of glamorous on the outside, but there's things, you know, it's a lot of work to writing a book and a lot of, a lot of things that you have to think about and, a lot of numbers you have to think about and it, and that's what I was explaining to him I said when you do a book like that it's not millions of dollars and it's not millions of copies and things of that that's the sort of stuff we were talking about right and he still said well still you know no matter what it makes or no, no matter what I still want to do a book we've had we've had a lot of great experiences and I want to do it and I, you're the guy I'd like to do it right I said great well let's sit down at Martinsville and let's talk about it and let's really seriously think about a publisher and let's think about what you want in it and those types of things and sadly we never got to have that conversation and so that's one of the things I thought about too I mean there's a lot of things that go through your mind when you hear that kind of news and then of course as you said after Jimmy took the checker flag he didn't go to victory lane and he he learned of that information after he got out of the race car. Right. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it was sad, very, very sad. And, of course, that opened up a, a brand new uh, bevy of stories and thoughts. And then we went on. I don't remember the time frame. I think we went to Atlanta the next week maybe. And, of course, we had a press conference with all the, the Hendrick, the, the guys. and. Right. You know, it, it just started a slow motion roll of, of thoughts and emotions and things. So, yeah. And, I, and he, I'll be honest with you, each time we go back to Martinsville, uh, I think about that weekend and especially the fall races we have at Martinsville. And gosh, it's, it's hard to believe it's been 17 years. Wow. That, that's what, you know, I tell all the young folks that I know now, uh, I have a niece that's in college, senior in college at UNCC and 
you know, several young people, and I just tell them, I said, enjoy every minute of your life because as you get older and you can relate, I'm sure too, Jerry, time just goes by so fast. And that's hard to believe it's been 17 years. Exactly. You know, and and, um, Randy's widow, Kathy, she actually wrote me a note. I I think it was maybe maybe a year afterwards or whatever and um, came out of the blue. I mean, I'd never talked to Kathy before that, and she sent me a a note that was – um, I, I'm not going to get into all the details because it was some other stuff that she mentioned there. But you know, the fact that she reached out to me and that I, that she thanked me for remembering, you know, that I recalled the the uh, unfortunate accident and you know that I went out to to uh, Bull Mountain. You know, that was right after I went out there, the the one year later. But um, you know, the the one thing that I remember also about their race is that, and I give the um, Mike Smith, who was the PR director at uh, Martinsville Speedway at the time, um, I gave him a lot of credit because he, as well as all the NASCAR PR folks that were there at the time, you know, they were scrambling so much. And there was, in essence, kind of a similarity on how they reacted because, you know, three a little over three and a half years earlier, that's when we lost Dale Earnhardt. But they all handled it with professionalism. They mm. all handled it with with grace. Um, you know, they understood that you know the media had a job to do to report what happened to the fans out there. Uh, but I give them all a lot of credit, and I, I will say this. And I eventually did apologize to him a couple of years later. Um, they brought in Ryan Newman to the media center in the infield, and I, I can't remember if they brought him in to speak or if he wanted to find out what was going on. something I don't remember exactly what happened. All I know is I followed him to almost the uh, door of the media center, and I said, hey, Ryan, uh, something to the effect of, you know, you were buddies with Ricky Hendrick. Um, you know, what can you tell me about, you know, your, your, how are you feeling right now? And he kind of, I, I, I won't say exactly what he said, but I understood after he said it, why he said it. And I eventually apologized to him later that, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm sorry that I had to ask you the question, but, you know, a journalist has to ask these kind of questions, you know, even in, in times of tragedy. And he was fine about it. He totally was cool, and I appreciated that he understood where I was coming from. But that also is a memory that will stick with me forever because, yeah. you know, how do you talk to somebody who knows people like that and asks them, you know, their thoughts about, you know, losing such a good friend, especially somebody that was that young. I mean, Ricky Hendrick, I think was, I think 25 or 26, something like that when he, when mm-hmm. he uh, was involved in that thing. But you know, the, the one thing about Martinsville though, is that like you said, we'll never forget it. I mean, yeah. 50 years from now, people are going to still be talking about it too. Right. Well, you know what? Uh, another part of the story too is, you know, in 2004, I, we came out with the 20th anniversary of the Hendrick Motorsports book. Mm-hmm. And I was honored to write that for them. And Rick asked me to do that because it was, they started the team in 84. Right. So 2004 was the 20th anniversary. And we, earlier that year, in January or February, you know, I had written that book for Hendrick Motorsports. And so, again, they came to me and asked me to do that. Rick did. And so, you know, that I was close to that crowd anyway. And that's why Randy wanted me to do the book, his book, because I had worked with him, you know, with that. And so, I don't know, it was just, I was, I'm, I'm still close to that crowd 
with Jeff and and Jesse Essex and Rick and you know what I mean all those all the people there and uh, good friends with a lot of the behind the scenes folks because we were able to put that together mm-hmm. and and I've made it known to Rick or Mr. H that you know here we are we're not but a couple of years away from doing the 40th anniversary right. Though. Right, right. So, which is really blows my mind that, gosh, here we are at 40 years for Hendrick Motorsports. So I've, I've let them know that, hey, if that opportunity comes along, we'd, I'd like to do that. And he said, yeah, I really want to do that. I want you to do that. And, mm. and here, because we got a lot to write about, because there's so many championships that have happened between 2004 and, and now. And we, right. we might be looking at a Kyle Larson championship coming right. up this year. So, Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that opportunity gave me a chance to go a little bit behind the scenes with those guys and become really good friends with them. So it was very painful to see we've lost so many great friends in that plane crash those that time. And uh, so, yeah, it's just it's a tough it's a tough, tough chapter to read. But like Rick and I talked about, we need to leave. We need to look at the, the good times of of what they brought to, to us mm-hmm. and maybe you leave the bad chapter up on the shelf. You yeah. know what I mean? But I that's that sad part, but there's a lot of great parts that we can smile about and be happy about. And, uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard. Anytime you lose friends like that, it's tough, but you just have to smile about the good times, I guess. Exactly. Now we, we got a lot more to talk about, but you know, I wanted to ask you, you, you said something that, and this is a question I should know the answer to. I've been covering NASCAR for almost 25 years straight. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer. You, I'm sure, know the I answer to this question. We'll try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You know, Rick Hendrick, obviously, the man's class, professionalism, personality speak for themselves. How is it that, you know, and people respect him so much, and he is certainly due all the respect in the world, I have never gotten a direct answer, and I'm hoping you can answer this for me, Ben. How is it that Rick is called Mr. Hendrick so much, or Mr. H? I mean, you don't hear like Mr. Gibbs or Mr. Roush or Mr. Penske. I mean, just like, you know, Rick is known as Mr. Hendrick or Mr. H. Is there any story behind how he got that that moniker, if you will? Um, I... I don't know a specific story, but I, I'll be honest with you. I just think it's just absolute 100% respect for the man. And this is why I say that. It, it, he's very giving. And uh, when when you sign a contract with him, he takes – I've always heard people say he takes better care of you than he does himself. In other words, if you if you sign a contract to drive a car for him – there may be a car dealership in, in the middle of that somewhere. Oh, wow. In other words, wow. It, it's wow. not. So I'd love to drive for him myself. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, he, he takes, he takes very, very good care of his people. And it's a very genuine, uh, gesture on his part. I think if you ask him and pin him down, he's just, he's still in awe of everything that he's been able to accomplish in this sport. Right. Because I mean, I, and I, and I say he's very humble about what he's done. If you ask him, you know, how do you feel about having your name listed among all those folks in the NASCAR Hall of Fame or, 
having your name in the same sentence as say Richard Petty or AJ Foyt or whatever, I think he's truly blown away by it. If you look back at his, uh, his history, he started off with a, with a dealership, you know, managing a dealership in Bennettsville, South Carolina of all mm-hmm. places. Right. And he was very successful at it. And he, even early in the game, uh, he borrowed money from his mom to start his first car dealership. And she was pretty strict about, you don't mess up payment with mom. <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying is he didn't grow up with money at all. And, right. and he built what he has from the very, very bottom up. And he's very been very, very successful. But he, he, is, uh, he takes care of the people who work for him. And he's always had that mentality that his biggest asset are his people. It's not about making me rich. It's about taking care of the people around him. Mm-hmm. And so when you look when you look at him as a racer, I think he's just genuinely blown away at, at how much he's accomplished. He's told me that back in 84, when they, when they went to the Daytona 500 for the first time with Jeff Bodine, his car, he was out there, his car was running with Richard Petty and Bobby Allison, Kale Yarborough, and, and they weren't running so good. And he said to me, he said, what in the world have I done? What have I gotten myself into? I've just made myself look like a laughing stock among all these great people. Right. And well, no, that's not the case. He's now the winningest team owner in NASCAR history, more so than the Petty Enterprises. But at the time he was like, what have I done? I've just I've just bought myself an embarrassment to myself. <laughs> right, right, right. And so to answer your question, I just think everybody, the, the Mr. H, Mr. Hendrick stuff is not a put on. It's just out of genuine, honest respect for the man. He's, right. he's really, I have a tremendous, tremendous amount of respect for him because he's just so, when I, t- matter of fact, when I talked to him after the, after Kyle won at Charlotte, he's just like, hey, old buddy. How you doing? Had seen you. How's your family doing? How's your son doing? Mm-hmm. And because he knows my son builds engines for him, and he's like, "Hey, how's he doing?" And he didn't act. He didn't treat me like, "Hey, I'm the I'm great, and you're not." We're on the same level. He's on the same level with everybody he talks to. It's not right. a put on. He's very genuine, very humble when right. you talk to him. Right, right. A couple more things I want to talk to you about yeah. today and in today's podcast, Ben. Um, uh, you know, we'd be remiss if we don't talk about Martinsville and the Martinsville uh, um, grandfather clocks. You know, the, the yeah. history about that, I mean, that is such a, you know, it's got to be one of the most unique trophies in any sport, let alone just in racing or NASCAR racing. What's the history of the the, uh, the grandfather clock in Martinsville Speedway? Well, the, the grandfather clock, and I've heard this two ways. I've heard it's actually a grandmother clock. Really? They call it a grandfather <laughs> clock because it's just people just call them that. But it's really a, what I've been told is a grandmother clock. I didn't know one existed, but it's slightly smaller than a grandfather clock. But it's mm-hmm. it's built locally. They're close to the racetrack. Uh, and it's just that Clay Earls wanted to have something different than just a plain old trophy. Uh, in his mind, and he is the builder of the racetrack, by the right. way, he right. Uh, he wanted something that would be useful as opposed to just having a trophy on a shelf. And he wanted it to be something unique. And, you know, it's, it's funny that, I mean, Richard Petty has 15 victories there at Martinsville mm-hmm. from 1960 to 1979. 
Okay, so I've talked to Kyle Petty, his son. Everybody knows Kyle. And he's like, okay, dad has 15 of these things. So he had to start giving them to family members because he didn't have anywhere to put them all. It's not like you, uh, on the opposite end of that trophy idea, you could build a shelf and put trophies, but when you got 15 grandfather clocks, grandmother, grandfather, grandmother clocks, what do you do with them? So he gave one to Dale Inman, Maurice Petty, the engine builder and brother. He gave them to a couple of cousins, gave them to all his kids. Well, that leaves what, seven or eight left, right? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so he's like, okay, so what do you do with them? So some friend, family members have them. I do know that Richard Petty has one or two in his bathrooms. Have you ever heard of having a grandmother or grandfather clock in your bathroom? You just threw me there. You threw me there. Why? Okay. Well, well hey, it's Richard. But he he, does, he wants, does. You know? Okay. So, so the idea is you have them, but you may be wind maybe one or two of them, because if you wound 15 of them, then you're going to go cuckoo yourself, <laughs> you know? So Kyle says, we don't, he doesn't wind them. If he had them all in the house and you wound them, you'd go nuts because they're all chiming at different times. But that's the idea behind it, because Mr. Earls just didn't want to have some. He wanted to have he's a, he was a very unique man and a very practical man. Right. He wanted I mean, this build, by the way, Martinsville was built on a tobacco field mm -hmm. and they had to crawl 30 yards basically in the brush to get a full view of it when they built it. And it's oh, like this this is where it was, it was. And when they built it, it wasn't in town like it is now. It was all. That area was just fields. It wasn't. It wasn't built like it like it is now. I mean, as far as the buildup of town, and so he felt like that would be the perfect place to build the speedway. So he was a very practical guy. He owned a he owned a bar. He he ran moonshine for a while. He had a pool hall. He was one of these guys trying to find a way to make money. Mm -hmm. And so very practical guy. So when it came up to in the mid sixties, he decided I need to do something to have a better trophy for these race drivers who went at my racetrack. And plus it was a great publicity stunt. Nobody else ever had a grandfather clock as a, as a trophy. Right. Yeah. So the downside was if you went at my racetrack too much, you get too many grandfather clocks, just ask Richard Petty. But I mean, he's like, sure, I'll, I'll take them. But, but Richard, <laughs> had a way of winning he just he loved the place so he's like sure uh, i'll be glad to put i can find a place for the trope for the grandfather clock so i'll be glad to win at your racetrack that's the story behind it yeah. i love that story and he, you know we you mentioned richard petty so much uh we failed to mention that he is our driver of the week because of his 15 wins at martinsville and also we mentioned or we didn't mention is at martinsville and Bowman Gray this week are our tracks of the week because you know you've got the Cup race at uh, at Martinsville this coming Sunday, and then you had uh, the Gen Seven test at Bow uh, Bowman Gray as well. A lot of things, you know. But Martinsville is just such a is 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 intertwined with so much stuff, not only the past but the present and the future of NASCAR. It's it's just to me, it's one of my favorite tracks for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Jerry, a lot of people don't realize that Bowman Gray Stadium was built actually 10 years before Martinsville and, it, and Bowman Gray was built as part of a work program to help the nation get out of the great depression. Right. I remember that. Right? And yeah. And it was, uh, it was basically built as a football stadium mm -hmm. and then as a way to bring more revenue into the city of Winston-Salem 
Bill France and Alvin Hawkins come up with the idea to build a racetrack around the, the football field. And the city elders like, are you nuts? <laughs> what do you need to go build a racetrack around the, the ball field? Like, well, we can put race cars on it and we can bring more money, more revenue to the city. And like, okay. So they ended up doing that. And that's how Bowman Gray got it to start somewhat 75 years ago or 85 years ago now. But uh, that's how it all started. And, and football games are still played there and races are there. And you know what? The unique part about it, I mean, when other short tracks are struggling mightily in the summer to get fans to come, Bowman Gray, through their modified races and their uh, uh, strictly stock races and their street stocks and, you know, all their, all their lower division, they get 17,000 people a yep. week there. Yep. 14 to 17,000. It's amazing that they get that many people and, and they are diehard modified fans. And I mean, goodness gracious, they, they really do attract the fans and it's a tremendous racetrack. And of course, Richard Childress stole peanuts and popcorn there as a teenager, a little bit, a little bit older than a teenager. Mm -hmm. And then uh, of course he raced their son before his cup series uh, days and of course, they raced the Cup Series, which was then the Grand National Series there, a lot, very storied speedway with a lot of races there. Curtis Turner and Bobby Allison, their duels. Uh, Richard Petty won the last Cup Series race there in 1970. And uh, so uh, just a lot of history at Bowman Gray. But, and then, of course, that track being a test track for when we go uh, to the L.A. Coliseum in 2022 right. for the Bush Clash. Right. And that's why you saw Clint Boyer, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Tony Stewart there a day or two ago testing the Gen 7 car. Right. So, yeah, just a lot of history at Bowman Gray for sure. And you know what I like about Bowman Gray, too, and I've only been there a couple of times, but I and I'd love to go there a lot more, is that you never know who you're going to bump into over there. I mean, mm -hmm. you you will run into a number of NASCAR drivers that just go out there just to have fun. I mean, Dale Jr. goes out there quite a bit from what I understand. I mean, you know, I know Bobby Labonte's been out there a number of times. Uh, just a lot of guys just, you know, when they're not in a race car or if they've retired or what have you, they still get that that itch that they've got to scratch by going to Bowman Gray and they're going to see some great modified action there. And, you know, they're just hanging out there, you know, they're having a beer, having a hot dog, whatever have you with the fans. I mean, it, that, that to me tells, says a lot about the sport because, you know, you talk about other sports like the NFL and major league baseball, NHL, NBA, you don't really see or hear about a lot of these, their stars, you know, going to, let's say, you know, um, uh, a small college game or, you know, something like that. I mean, it's, it's very unique that, I mean, Bowman Gray in itself in, in, in and of itself is unique, but the fact that it has, uh, it, it welcomes everybody and a lot of, you know, big name NASCAR drivers come out there on a regular basis. That says a lot about the place too. It, it does. And, and, you know, the, the neat thing, neat part about Bowman Gray is it's free parking. Yep. Uh, the, the concessions are not, uh, out of this world expensive. The racing is good. It's guaranteed fender to fender action. And, you know, it, as some people kid about, there's a fight and a race might break out. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> know, it's, I mean, there's, there's really some great action there. But it is amazing, though, to me, Jerry, how many people go there every week during the summer from like, I don't remember when they start, maybe June through, no, no, I, I'm sorry, I'm in back up. 
early, like mid-April to, to August, maybe, I think is when it is. But, I mean, if you really want to have a great night of racing, you could take a family of four and and maybe run by and grab a pizza, go to the track, and, and literally go for the amount of money that you could go see a movie. I mean, it's really not expensive to go up there and see a, a great night of action and and uh, grab one of their hot dogs and some fries and a drink. And I don't, I've been there a bazillion times and uh, it, it's, it's a fun track to go to and see some really good short track action. And like you said, you might run into a, either a current uh, star of NASCAR or most likely run into somebody like a Rex White or like a, a NASCAR Hall of Famer or somebody like that is just wants to go up and, and reminisce about races they had there. It's a great exactly. track. Right, right, right. Ben, we gotta we're coming near to the finish line, but I want to. We have one thing we haven't touched on. I want to touch uh, talk about this a little bit. You know, we've okay. um, uh, on every episode we always. Uh, you know, each episode of the of the lifetime in NASCAR has a number to it, and this week's edition is number thirty six. It's the thirty sixth episode. We mm -hmm. also like to tie in the race cars that carry that same number. So for this week, obviously, we're talking about the number thirty six. You sent me some information. I'm just looking at these stats, Ben, and I am just blown away because drivers of the 36 over the years have included Derek Cope, Ernie Irvin, J.J. Yaley, Ken Schrader, who had the most starts in the 36 in his career, Matt Tift, Reed Sorensen, Regan Smith, who started the last two Daytona 500s in the third number 36. And then also, uh, and I, we haven't even touched about this, uh, but I'll mention this briefly about Martinsville as well that uh, let's not forget the Joey Logano, Matt uh, Kenseth, uh, to a little tiff they had, what, about four or five years ago. That was another thing that, that people have never forgotten about. I'm sure they'll be talking about this weekend. But going back to the number 36, though, four, 748 races, the number 36 car has started in the Cup Series. Ben, take it from there. Tell us all about the number of wins and everything else from that point on. Well, I hate to break it to you, Jerry. Another one that we've covered in the past two weeks that has never had a cup win. And I, I find these to be very surprising to me because you think after 748, 50 starts, it didn't go to Victor Lane somewhere, but yep. it didn't. It's not been into Victor Lane yet. And uh, you never know, somewhere down the road it might. The first time the uh, number 36 actually went to the racetrack, or actually got on the racetrack, excuse me, is what I meant to say. A gentleman by the name of Jimmy Thompson in June, on June 19, 1949, the first time NASCAR's strictly stock uh, took a green flag and checkered flag, and that was at the Charlotte Fairgrounds, not Charlotte Motor Speedway, mm -hmm. uh, but that was the first time 36 ever ran. But... Uh, it never has gone to victory lane, which I find to be very surprising. And uh, it's tried 748 times, but it just never has gotten there. So still, who knows? It could one of these days it might get there. Well, you know, I'm looking at these stats that you sent me, and I'm just I'm amazed at number one. Okay, 748 starts with the number 36, no wins. But there have been 126 top 10 finishes, so it's not – you know, I wouldn't call it a, uh, you know, a superstitious number or what have you. I mean, it has had some success over there. 284 top 20 finishes, but then, whoops, hang on a second. My, my alarm's going off here. Hang on one second here. Okay, why is my alarm? Sorry about that. Um, but here's the, the flip side of that. 242 DNFs. 
out of 748 starts. So basically a third of the starts that the number 36 has had have finished in DNFs or have not finished in, or have not finished the races, if you will. So, but that's that, that's just amazing to me that you know no one has won, and this is the second week in a row we've had a number. We had number 35 in episode 35 last week. No one has ever won a NASCAR Cup race in the 35. No one's won in the 36. And and uh, Ben, you said we may have a few more of those coming up in the next few weeks as well, yeah, too. It could be, but I tell you what, I, I'm seriously, if I was a team owner. I'd, I'd pour myself a glass of wine and prop my feet up and start studying some of these numbers because I I think there's something to that. I, I would want a number, I believe, that has at least gone to victory lane six or eight times. I mean, think yep. about why. I'd want to know why I think with some of the best drivers, yeah, like you said, Schrader, Ernie Irvin, some, it's had some good drivers tried to get 36 into victory lane. It's never got there, so... I'd want 43, I think. <laughs> That's the proof. But, you know, it's kind of taken. But I'm just saying, 36, it's just amazing to me some of these numbers have not gone to victory lane. And, and yeah, I would, I'd look at some numbers before I, if I had a race team and I got, I'm looking out the window out there at the, at the shop and I got a bunch of cars in primer and I'm thinking NASCAR is on the line saying, what number would you like to try if it's available? I'd look at the charts first. Exactly, exactly. Well, we, obviously, we got those numbers from our good buddies over at RacingReference.info. Yeah. So, but Ben, hey, this has probably been the best episode I've had with you since we started this uh, several weeks ago. I really enjoyed this episode. We had a lot of ground to cover, and Martinsville is such a historic racetrack that you know we could talk about them for probably three or four podcasts or three or four yes, hours did. if we if we wanted to. So, but. Again, as always, thanks ever so much for uh, being uh, here on the Lifetime in NASCAR. And uh, we'll be back same bat time, same bat channel. And for those of you who are probably <laughs> sure figuring out what that means, well, look up Batman and then you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That'll be next week. Yeah. Hey, right, it's right almost here. Halloween. So I... that, oh, that's right. I mean, think about it. You're right. That's right. That's right. Halloween. That's right. So, Ben, as always, thanks ever so much. Again, some great, great stories. And uh, we'll do it again next week right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR. Take care, everyone. Have a good week. And, uh, don't forget to watch the race this weekend at Martinsville because we will find out who will be the Ford final drivers. We already know Kyle Larson's in it. We'll find out the other three drivers who are going to be competing for the 2021 NASCAR Cup Championship. For Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. This is the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll talk to you next week, everyone. Take care.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyIn.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, Ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.